All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Pursuit of Relentless podcast. And today I have a guest that is unlike any other that I've had an opportunity to interview because he's in the music industry. And I'm like so excited to get an opportunity to share your story with everybody. So welcome to the show, Dave Combs. Thank you, Elena. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I listened to your song on the way home from yoga today. And I was just like, wow, this is beautiful. And I just you know, when we were talking earlier about the feeling that you get when you put a song on, for example, and it just helps you work through some of the stuff that you're going through. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it's music has really, really had that effect on me through my whole life. So I'm excited to hear where you started in your business and <laughs> how it turned into what it is today. Well, it's quite a journey. In fact, it was such a a journey that, as you can see over my shoulder here, there's a book that came out of this, all of these stories. So we're going to tell some of these stories today, and and they're all going to be in the book, but uh, you're going to hear them from me personally. But I'm Dave Combs, and I was born and raised in the East Tennessee Mountains. I'm an East Tennessee hillbilly, as we say, and uh, my mom and dad grew up uh, in the mountains of southwestern Virginia, not too far away. But I grew up in Irwin, Tennessee, E-R-W-I-N, Tennessee, near Johnson City, Asheville, if you've heard of Asheville, North Carolina. And it's up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, My house, I could look out the front door and see a mountain range, a a ridge of mountains. And on across the valley was another whole ridge of mountains. So we were down in a valley surrounded by these beautiful, majestic mountains that just were unbelievable in the fall. The colors were just spectacular. And my mom and dad both played instruments. My mom and dad both played the piano and loved music. And my grandmother Combs, she was born in 1894. So you could get an idea of how old she was, but she was four foot eight. She came up to about here on me. <laughs> she was a pretty yeah. short little lady, but she loved to make music. She she could play by ear. She could play an old, they, she played an old pump organ in the church that where she went to church. That was this before electricity was even in the church. You know, you you pump the, the organ with your feet to get the air blowing through it. And then she would play the, this organ. But the other instrument that she loved to play, and I, I brought it with me today, so I wanted to show it to you. Some of your uh, your listeners and viewers will know what it is. It's an auto harp and it's a stringed instrument that basically just has some it's, it's something anybody can play. Any, any kid can even play it that doesn't even know music because you, all you do is push a button, if I can get this done, and strum it. And if you want another chord, you push another button. And then here's another chord. So every time I visited my Granny Combs, my job, first job, was to tune up her auto harp. And, the, and this is her auto harp, by the way. And in the box over there is a note from my granny that says, when I'm gone, this belongs to David Combs. And she signed it, Granny Estelle Combs. That was her name. So so I can still see her. I'd hand it to her after I tuned it up for her, and she'd sit there and she'd sing Amazing Grace or some pretty old song. And so those are some of my earliest memories that are tied to music. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I grew up in uh, a family that we went to church. We were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night prayer meeting. And our church was a Baptist church in East Tennessee that had a wonderful choir and an organist with a Hammond organ and a pianist. And so they always had piano organ duets. And, and I just remember as a little kid when they'd do the offertory or prelude or whatever, special music, organ and piano sounds so good together. In fact, they sound so good that my wife and I used piano organ duets for the entire music for our wedding. It was about 45 minutes before we got married of duets. And then all the music during the the wedding was piano and organ as well. So I love music and I guess I I, I just grew up around it. And it's quite, I think it's uh, poetic that I ended up in the music industry being uh, self-supporting as a musician and uh, having my own music company. But it wasn't always that way in terms of the music business. I went to work uh, after college in Western Electric, which is an arm of AT&T, the Ma Bell company. And I was a computer programmer. And, uh, you know, I was a math major, physics minor. So I'm an analytical kind of person. 
I have my MBA from Wake Forest University. I got that in 1978. So I'm a business-oriented person, but I love music. And I have all all my life. So and during the day, it's it's business. And then in the evenings, I come home and relax, sit out at the piano and play something. And one January in 1981, one evening, I came home from work, sat out at the piano to play as I usually did, just to relax. And I started playing a tune. And I'm sorry, let me undo my, my email. My mail keeps binging in on me here, and I need to just quit that and let it stop doing that. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. And it happens. I wouldn't be surprised if my dog just wakes up at somebody <laughs> and barking. You never know. <laughs> so I, I forgot to turn that off. So anyway, I apologize. So I came home that evening and sat down at the piano and started playing this tune. And it was, you know, you know, I, musicians will will know what I'm talking about here, that when you're playing a song just out of your head or by ear, you're hearing it as you're playing it and you're anticipating. You, if you know the song, you know what's coming next, you know, the next notes and the next when the chorus is coming and all that. Well, this particular song was not a song that I'd ever heard before. But it was as if I could hear in my head what the next notes were supposed to be. Mm. And so I played this song as same as if I would play in, in a familiar song, played the whole thing through, didn't think anything about it. I just I liked the song. I liked the way it sounded. A couple of days later, my wife comes home from work and she says, Dave, I've been humming this song in my head all day long. What is the name of it? And so she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, Linda. It doesn't have a name. And she said, what? It doesn't have a name. I said, yeah, I just I just made it up. And so she got all excited. And so she says, have you written it down? I said, well, no, I got it up here in my my, my mind. She said, no, I, something might happen to you. You might get run over by a truck or something. <laughs> and that song would be gone. So she says, you write it down. I said, OK, yes, ma'am. So I wrote down the notes and the chords on a piece of paper and put it in the piano bench. Well, that was in January of 1981. A couple of years later, some good friends of ours had a little baby girl. Her name was Rachel. Now, all this time for these two years, we've been trying to think of a name for this song and nothing ever fit. It just we couldn't come up with. It. So at when we were asked by Rachel's parents to be her godparents, we, of course, went to her christening service. And we're sitting there in the church with us and the family. It was just a private service. And at the end of the service, I'd been noticing up front this beautiful grand piano sitting at the front of the church. And so I punched Linda and I said, what do you think about me playing this little tune now as part of this end of this service? She said, I think that's a good idea. So I went up to the front and asked the preacher and the, the uh, family if it'd be OK if I played this little tune. They said, well, sure. Oh, I went over to the piano and everybody sat back down and I started playing this song. And I got most of the way through it, and I, I kept hearing the sniffles in the crowd and <clears throat> people clearing their throat and, you know, that, that those noises. I knew they were getting a little emotional about it, and so was I. You know, I, I could tell I was having a, a tear or two come down my cheek. It was a very precious moment in that service. So at the end of the song, I looked over at little Rachel in her mother's arms, and I said, okay, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's Song in her honor. And it, the song and the music and the little girl and baby, all that just was perfect fit. And it stuck and it is still, I think, the perfect name for the little tune. So that's how it got its name. Well, roll forward another three years. Uh, I, I would play Rachel's song periodically for, for us and for friends or whatever. But three years later, I was traveling with Western Electric. And one of the places I had to travel to was Nashville, Tennessee. And for those of your listeners that know about Nashville, Tennessee, it's the it's called Music City, USA, and it earns that title. Almost everything in that town has something to do with music. And so uh, I was in town. Linda says, why don't you go and get a demo recording made of Rachel's song while you're in Nashville? I said, well, that's a great idea. So I went out one evening. I was having to work there all week long, Monday through Friday, come home on the weekends. So I went one evening driving around downtown Nashville to look for a studio to, where I could get Rachel's song recorded. Well, I 
went to the area of town called, it's called Music Square. It's about two square blocks of nothing but music inside there. It's the BMI headquarters, ASCAP, Country Music Hall of Fame, uh, Songwriter Hall of Fame, RCA Studios, all of those things. And so I go driving down one street. It's called Roy Acuff Place. Now, some of your listeners may know of Roy Acuff. He was a very well-known and well-loved country music person at the, the Grand Ole Opry, Opry, Roy Acuff. And uh, so at the end of that street was a building that looked like a barn, it had the barn shaped roof on it. And then out front was this big, great big water wheel. Uh, and so on the side of the building, it said the music mill. I thought, well, now this is encouraging. So I went into the parking lot and sure enough, I saw a, a, through the glass door, I saw a man sitting at a desk. And so I went over to the door and knocked on it. And, he came and opened the door and introduced himself. He says, hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? Now, it's not the same George Clinton you're thinking about, probably, but this George Clinton was a very well-loved recording engineer in Nashville, Tennessee. He passed away a few years ago, but everybody loved George, I found out. But uh, I told George, I said, well, I'm looking for a studio to record a demo of a song that I've written called Rachel's Song. And he said, well, come on in. And so I went inside and up on the wall on the left was a great big life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. And here's a big picture of uh, the uh, Alabama, the group. And then here's Forrester Sisters and Gold Records and Platinum Records. And everything was really impressive around this great big lobby. So I, was, I realized that I was in a first-class place, a classic classy recording studio. Mm -hmm. and, and I'd never been in one, so I didn't even know what to expect. And I told George I'd never been in one. He said, well, let me give you a tour. He said, nobody's recording right now. And so let me show you Studio A, our best studio here. So we went in the recording room, the big room in Studio A, and it was, you could put an orchestra or a high school choir or, a, you know, a bunch of people in there, a bunch of musicians. And it had a nine foot grand piano over in the corner and Really impressive. And then he said, well, let's go into the to the control room. I want to show you where all the magic happens. So we, he opens this great big thick door about a foot thick, and it's a soundproof door. You go in there and into the control room. And here's this huge console that had must have had looked like 32. I think it was a 32-track console. So it looked like a, about eight feet long with sliders and buttons and knobs and lights and everything. You, it looked like you could you could launch a spaceship from that room, <laughs> something you'd see in NASA. But it had tape recorders around the wall and um, machines. And I said, well, George, how expensive is this place to rent? And he said, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. I said, whoa, man, that's a lot. I said, remember, this was 1986. And uh, that was a lot of money back in 1986. Mm -hmm. So I, he said, well, don't worry. He said, the guy that owns this studio owns another one, a little one across the street that's in a, a, a former rent house. And so he says, it's $15 an hour plus engineer. And I said, well, I can afford that. So, so good. So now all I need is I need a piano player to play Rachel's song. Who would you recommend I get to play my music for me as a demo? And he, he thought, I, I know just the right person. He said, his name is Gary Prim. He, everybody loves Gary Prem. He's a wonderful musician. He said, I, he and I go to church together. We're just really good friends, and he'll probably do a great job. So let's go back in the office, and let me get you his phone number. So he wrote down, he looked up his phone number on the Rolodex, and put, got his phone number, wrote it down on a piece of paper for me. And I thanked him, and I left and went back to my hotel room, immediately placed a phone call to Gary, got his answering machine, and in about 30 minutes, he called me back. And he said, this is Gary. Can I help you? I said, well, I've got this song. I need a demo made. Would you be able to do that for me? He said, well, sure, I can do that. And I said, well, what do you need? And he said, I need you to send me a, a recording of you playing it. And I need a, a copy of the lead sheet. And I said, well, what's a lead sheet, Gary? <laughs> and he, he's showing my ignorance of what of the music industry. And he, he said, well, it's just the notes and the chords of the song written out, just simply. Well, I said, well, I've got that. It's in my piano bench, I'll, I'll send that to you. I just didn't know what to call it. 
So when I got back home, I sent the lead sheep and sheet and a, a recording of me playing Rachel's song to Gary. And two weeks later, on August the 22nd, 1986, at 6 p.m., I met Gary Prim at this little studio across the street from the music mill. And he came in with carrying his Yamaha DX7 synthesizer, and I have one just like it now, but it was just an analog, wonderfully well thought of for the day synthesizer. So he came in with that, set it up, and then sat down at the piano. It was a little baby grand Yamaha piano in this studio, which I later found out was the first Yamaha piano ever shipped to Nashville, Tennessee from, from Japan. Wow. So this piano had some history. Yeah. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to know which of those old piano players and musicians in Nashville played that piano? Because uh -huh. I guarantee you, you know, Elvis could have played it. You know, Floyd Kramer, you know, all these great uh, piano players would, would possibly have played that same piano. I'd love to know that. But anyway, so Gary sits down at the piano and he starts warming up and I'm in the control room with the engineer. And Gary says, well, I'm ready. So the engineer says, well, I'm ready too. So he pushes record and says, we're rolling. And uh, so Gary starts playing Rachel's song. Now, remember, this is the first time I've ever heard Rachel's song played by anybody but me. That was a very emotional experience for me to hear. Yeah, it's in those moments when you're able to really appreciate the work that you've done. Yeah, so I'm I'm listening to him play my music and just blown away by what I'm hearing. And he gets halfway through the song and he stops. He's for some reason he didn't like what he did or something. He said, "Let's start over. Let's rewind it and let's do it again." Second time through, he played the song all the way through to the end with no mistakes, no no stopping at all. And I thought, "Wow, this is just blowing my mind what I'm hearing." And he says, well, I'm not through yet. He said, I've been thinking about this arrangement and I want to make it really special. So what I'm going to do, he said, I'm going to take the, the piano part and I'm going to play the same thing on the synthesizer with an electric piano sound. And they call that doubling. So I'm going to double the piano and that'll give it a richer tone and a much more uh, a deeper tone for the, the, the piano part. He did that amazing he played it note for note just perfect and it was a, you know as a, in musical terms they call it it was really tight everything was right on right on the, the beat that was supposed to be and then he said well i need to add some bottom to the thing i want some add some top so let's put some low strings and some high strings in here to give it a really some breadth to the, the music the back backdrop of the music uh -huh. so he flipped his synthesizer to those sounds and put the headphones on and he's playing along with the piano part and adds the strings part and two more tracks adds the high strings part then he said i think i need to add some horns here in the middle so he found the horn sound played some some horns in there and uh, <clears throat> the arrangement that he did was different than i played the song he we started out in the same the same key key of c that i wrote it in but right in the after the second verse he goes immediately up to the key of C sharp, up a half a step, which when you listen to the song, I think you will agree that it just adds a other, an old, another whole layer of energy to the song. Mm -hmm. It just raises everything up, which was really kind of catches you by surprise. And then it's you're pleasantly surprised by how it sounds. Well, he finished all that about 45 minutes and he's done. He listened, we listened to the whole thing, and he said, I think that's as good as I can do. So I wrote him a check for the agreed-upon fee and paid him, and he left. And as he was going out, I had no idea whether I'd ever see Gary again or not because I didn't know what was in my future, and neither did he. But it turns out that he and I, over the years, would go into the studio and record over 170 songs and over 120 that I wrote. But at this point, I had only written one, and that was Rachel's song. And it just blew me away with the way it sounded. Everybody I played it for that I worked with, they loved the song. I came back home to Winston-Salem, played it for my wife and everybody, and they loved the song. And I got it played on the radio that next weekend. And here's how that happened. I was having lunch with a friend of mine on a totally unrelated subject. 
and I was telling him about my trip to Nashville and and, Nash, and Ra- Rachel's song recording. And he says, Dave, I got to hear this after you tell me this story. So he said, uh, let's go to my office. I've got a tape player in the office. We can listen to it. So we went to Bob. His name is Bob McCone. And I went to his office and we, he popped the cassette into his, uh, his boom box to listen to. And he's sitting there. And Elena, you, you're familiar with the, I, I call it the universal approval sound. He's sitting there listening to Rachel's song. His eyes are closed. And I hear him go, mm, 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 mm. <laughs> You know, it's kind of like it is when you take a bite of a good steak or a good uh, something that you like to, that tastes so good. You just go, mm, that's good. Well, that was the way he kind of reacted. And at the end, he said, Dave, he had tears in his eyes. He was he was literally brought to tears. And he said, Dave, that is a standard. That will be a standard for sure. And he said, you've got to let me put that on my my radio program this Saturday. And I sort of I hadn't totally forgot, but I didn't remember that he had this three hour Saturday morning big band jazz radio program that he was the host of the, 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 the DJ. And so I said, okay, well, here's, I only have this master tape and you take good care of it because that's the only copy in the whole world of this music. And he said, I will. So they made a copy at the station of the music. And that Saturday morning, sure enough, Rachel's song was announced and played for the first time by Bob McCone on that radio program. And of course, Linda and I were at home with the radio on. We were just blown away hearing my music on a, the radio station. I've never had that happen before. So the phone rings in after the, the song quits uh, after about 30 minutes later, and it's the radio station manager. And he says, uh, is this Dave Combs? I said, yep. He said, well, this is so-and-so, the station manager of WK, WKLM Radio. And he said, uh, I have been in radio for over 20 years, and this has never happened to me ever before. When Bob played Rachel's song on the station, said, we've got our phone, you know, when the radio stations have a lot of phone lines, you know, the third caller is going to win a prize, you know, this, <laughs> they stack them up. They had about 10, 10 lines. He said, all our lines were locked up, busy, all lit up. Everybody wanting to know what was that song you just played? Would you play that again and tell us more about this Rachel song or more about this Combs guy in Winston-Salem? And he said, this is just blowing me away. He said, you've, you've got something really, really special. And, you know, they played my song, Rachel's song, on that radio station. From that point on, every, not every day, every hour, sometime during the hour, they would put Rachel's song on that radio station. It was unbelievable. They did that for over a year. And it was just, it blew my mind. I got to know that I, I would frequently love to go over to the station and sit in the studio with the DJ. His name was Bill Price. And we would sit and talk about the music and then he'd play it. And then callers would call in and we'd just have a wonderful conversation. But we did that for over a year. Wonderful memories of how that got, the music got really started. But that's what kicked in my entrepreneurial juices because then I realized that I had something that had more appeal that was certainly bigger than me. It was the, the song kind of took on a life of its own. And my job was simply to get it out there. Yes. Well, how am I going to get it out on all these radio stations? There were about 400 easy listening radio stations in the whole country at that time. Now there's only maybe four or five, if that many. But back then, that was one of the formats that there was a lot of stations that did that. So I bought the list of the phone numbers and, and, and addresses of the stations, started calling, and I'd find out who the program director was, send them a copy of Rachel's song, they'd play it. And almost, I'd say, I don't remember ever getting a station that did not play it. And some of the stations told me that they didn't do their own programming. It was done by a company called Bonneville Broadcasting that would supply programming to a bunch of stations. So I thought, oh, well, this is going to save me a lot of phone calls. So I got the phone number of Bonneville Broadcasting, got a hold of the guy whose job was to program all the easy listening stations, sent him Rachel's song. He loved it. He said, Dave, I'm going to put this on my, my rotation and playlist for all my easy listening stations. Yeah. So instead of going to just a handful, it went to 200 stations all at once. 
Wow. And, you know, that, that would be a similar to somebody inventing a product or having a, a product that all of a sudden Walmart decides to carry it or Costco decides to carry it. Wow. Now you're in a whole different league of, of reaching people. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I felt about this. And so I started getting fan mail. People would track me down. I mean, they'd call the station and say, tell me how to get a hold of this Combs person. I want my own copy of this. <laughs> well, it wasn't available anywhere because I didn't hadn't figured out that part of the <laughs> entrepreneurial business yet. But I knew I was I was going to need to because of all the le- I started getting letters, the mailbox, dozens of letters from people. Well, how can I get a hold of it? I started making copies of my cassette tape by hand, not by hand, but you know, one at a time. On a, I have a two, over, still have it over here. It's a, a two deck cassette player. You put a blank one over here and a, the master over here. You push duplicate, and it would copy the the master onto a, a, a blank cassette tape. But it was slow because it did it in real time. If it three three minutes and forty five seconds song, it took three minutes and forty five seconds to make one copy. Right. And I made boxes of copies. I, in the evening, I'd be up till midnight making copies of my Rachel song because that many people wanted. It. And I'd sell it to them for the cost of the the blank tape with, with maybe a couple of dollars for postage. And so I've sold dozens of them, but that ended pretty quick because I could not keep up with that. And found I found how to how to get it duplicated in mass in big quantities, and there was a company in Nashville, Tennessee, called Custom Tape Duplicators that did that. Cool. And I would order it. Eventually, I ordered my music by the pallet load, five thousand copies at a time. But that wasn't to start with. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's the story of how I got the song written, named, and recorded. That's amazing. And I just want to go back because. <laughs> the whole story is like you never know the power of that one conversation you never know whose life you're going to change and how it's going to impact these people's lives for instance just by talking to someone and going hey have you heard my song you know like how how can I express my gratitude well here's my song um I'm so excited to have an opportunity to be a godfather for example you know like how beautiful mm-hmm. is that? And then it's just like, boom, this is Rachel's song. And it's just those moments when you're, you don't understand that you're in the middle of it. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I can't do this. <laughs> but you don't, I'm getting emotional. You just don't know how much of an impact you're able to make in those kind of scenarios because you're just like doing your thing. You're just, putting yeah. it out there you know you're just having a conversation with some random person who goes oh what about this or I should play this on my station and I think when it comes to entrepreneurship people get so caught up in the grind and like oh I have to do this I have to do this I have to do this but if you just sit back and go I'm just gonna do me <laughs> you know, <laughs> it turns into this type of gift that you've been given to produce the music and to get it out there and to talk to the right people, for example. But it takes making those phone calls and doing the hard work and staying up till midnight. And that's the stuff that people want to kind of like avoid, but you can't. Like that's when it happens in those moments when it's hard, in those moments when you're sitting there going, I don't even know what I'm doing right now, but I'm going <laughs> to give it a go, you know? Yeah. And that's when you create this incredible life for yourself. So we said in the pre-interview, it's never a straight line, right? Because it's never, nope. oh, I'm just going to be this big time fancy hotshot. No, yeah. it's not like that at all. It's literally, no, I, I wrote a song because it just, it stuck with me. Or like, I just wanted to get it on paper, you know? And it just... Mm-hmm turned into this incredible story so i just had a, a a memory come back to me that i it's not even in my book i don't know why how i missed it yes. but talking to you from your since you're in canada in edmonton alberta and you may remember a song called music box dancer no i don't remember that one but i will have to go look there is it. an instrumental song back in this i guess maybe in the 70s late 70s that this guy his name was frank mills he's from canada cool 
he wrote the song uh, Music Box Dancer. Well, I knew it was instrumental and I knew he had had some success with it. And I remember getting in touch with Frank early in when I had Rachel's song to get his opinion about what he what I could do and what and so forth. But I remember that there was a connection that I made with Frank Mills and his Music Box Dancer song because his Music Box Dancer was a really popular, very, and I love to, to play it myself. And when you hear it, just when you Google it, you'll hear it. Oh, I know that song. It's it's one of those, but you don't hear it very often anymore. Right, but it, right. back in the day, it was a very popular song. But I, I, I thank you for jogging a memory cell here that finally kicked in. That said, oh, that was Music Box Dancer that was in Canada that that I did talk to connected with Frank Mills, and he was very encouraging about my Rachel song as an instrumental, and he had made a lot of money with his. And he, I think that song put him on the map. But uh, anyhow, thanks for jogging my memory on that one. Uh, no, I think it's awesome. Like one of my neighbors is a songwriter and he is just creating and creating and creating. And I'm like, dude, you're going to make it big. Like you're going to you're going to do big things in the world. And he's like, yeah, I'm working on it. He's like putting out good content, you know, like good wholesome mm -hmm. music. And I love that. And I have family members that are in the music industry as well that live in Nashville. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of the Moffats, but the Moffats were my mom's cousins mm -hmm. and uh, they were a country band as kids. And then they kind of split up and did their own thing. And now it's um, Endless Summer, I believe the name of their band is. And just a little shout out for them. But their music is beautiful, just beautiful. And the way that they live their life is the way that I think most people should. Right. You follow your passion, but at the same mm -hmm. time, you can still have a family life. You can still have everything that you want to create. It's just a matter of figuring out who needs to be in communication with you and which mm -hmm. programs you need to be on and doing the actual behind the scenes work that I find a lot of entrepreneurs just like don't understand, um, especially new entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And let me ask you this. So were there any times in your career when you were like, this ain't going to work. I don't know how, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, any struggles like that that really stuck with you? Yeah, the uh, early on, and I was going to say you, your advice to your entrepreneur audience is really that you don't, you never give up mm. and you always keep, and my, my thing is you keep moving, you take action. You don't just, you know, nothing ever happens if you just sit down and do nothing. You're yeah. guaranteed to fail if you do that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. if you keep moving forward, let's like your neighbor friend that writes song, keep writing the good material. You have to have a good product, whether it's a song or whether it's a product or whether it's a, a skill that you have. Let's say you're a, a gifted teacher or you're a gifted speaker. Uh, you know, all, there's all kinds of gifts in the world, but you take those gifts and you figure out and you, you, you take action with them. Mm -hmm. And like you said, you're going to you're going to meet people. Maybe casually across across the aisle at a restaurant or in the grocery store, you may meet somebody that could change your life. You know, when they you find out they find out what you do and you find out what they do. And the two of those things just go boom like this. And that suddenly you're, you're way up here with a, a, a business that may you would never thought of. So that those kind of things happen to me. You know, I and, and another thing is don't think that you have to plan every little dot and tittle between now and you know the, the end of the end process you're not going to know all the answers you're not going to know and just have the faith to keep moving ahead and making try to make good decisions don't just blindly go at something mm -hmm. but make good decisions and keep moving and you know I, I i tried to sell my music through the record stores back then we had big box record stores that sold music it's kind of like Best Buy does now with, you know, electronics, whatever. But they used to have stores that sold nothing but records and tapes and CDs. Mm -hmm. And I would approach them about selling my music. It made sense to me that they would, you know, there would be my Rachel song right along with everybody else's. That was my dog knocking over my lighting. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. We're good. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. Well, I'm glad you're okay. Yeah. Hope the dog is okay. Uh, she uh, didn't even wake up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, well. She's fine. Anyhow, so those folks didn't even give me the time of day. I, I would approach them about carrying my music. They never heard of Dave Combs. They, they, I'd play the music for them. They, yeah, it's pretty, but... 
we don't, you know, instrumental music. Now we're inter country and rock and roll and pop, all this other stuff. And people who that are out on the tour and, you know, giving concerts and the, being promoted by the big record companies. Well, that wasn't me. So that was, yes, one of those disappointments where I said, well, I do not know how I'm going to do this. But I had the clear feeling down in my gut. And I think that's part of being an entrepreneur is that you yes. can never take that gut feeling that I've, I know I can do this. Listen to I my just, gut. <laughs> yeah, just go. You're so gonna know. I'm, I'm going to I don't know, but I will know before I'm through. That's kind of my attitude. And yeah, so I yeah. kept thinking and planning and trying this, trying that. Nothing really worked. And then in my book, if you read my book, there's a phrase that I use a lot in there. It's called a God wink. Squire Rushnell wrote a little cute little cute little tiny little book called When God Winks. And what it's about is that in in life, there are things that happen when you look back on them. That could not have been a coincidence that I met that person at that street corner at that time or or at that particular event. You know, events come there? together. You said you had the song in your head that you just it just existed. That's a good mm -hmm. link right there. Yes. Boom. You just have this amazing song. Boom. Yep. So you have to be attuned to these God winks that happen in your life. And one happened to me with Rachel's song, a lady that I worked with at AT&T. She was in the office right beside mine. She loved Rachel's song. And she says, Dave, could I give one of your CDs to my good friend, Jane, who owns a gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria? Now, if you've ever been to Old Town, Alexandria, it's right across the river from uh, Washington, D.C. It's a tourist area, beautiful walking along the Potomac River, and there's gift shops and wonderful restaurants, very popular place to, to visit. And so she said, my friend Jane owns this gift shop called America, and she sold everything red, white, and blue. It was all patriotic kind of things, you know, flags and anything red, white, and blue. And she played music in her shop. She played patriotic music, of course. You know, John Philip Sousa, all the, the wonderful patriotic music. But And she had a great sound system, a big five-CD changer in her, in her store. She could play music. So she said, can I give Jane one of your CDs of Rachel's song? I said, well, sure. And so she did. And then a couple of days later, I get a phone call, and it's Jane. She says, Dave? This is Jane at the America store. Uh, I have a problem. Said uh, every time I play Rachel's song in the store, all of my customers come over to the counter and say, "Jane, do you have this music that you're playing for sale? I want to take that home with me." And she said, "No, I didn't, but I will." <laughs> so she called me and she said, "Can you bring me some tapes and CDs of Rachel's song?" And I had never sold the tapes and CDs at retail anywhere before, so I didn't even know how to set a re wholesale price. So we had negotiated a, a, a fair price for me to sell them to her for, and I think it was I sold them for $8, I think, for a CD, and she sold them for 14 or 15 And so it was a fair deal, and I, she said, can you bring them down to me tonight? I said, well, sure. So after we got home from work, Linda and I boxed up a box of tapes and CDs and we go to Old Town Alexandria and take them to Jane. And I, we had no idea what was going to happen. Two or three days later, she calls me back and said, Dave, those are all gone. I need some more. Can you bring me more tonight? And how about doubling the order? <laughs> so, OK. All right. So here we go again. Now, got to mind, I did not mind going downtown Old Town Alexandria. There's restaurants like Landini Brothers and all these wonderful places to eat. So we'd go take Jane or tapes and CDs and we'd go out and have a fine dinner in down in Old Town. So that was a great trip. But we made that trip every week for over a year. I mean, she sold thousands of tapes and CDs out of that one uh, album out of that one shop. Mm. All her customers just took it, just just flew out the door as they would come in. If they hear it, they sold it because it was just in a basket right there by the cash register. There's a CD. We'll take it home for you. And boom. What they call an impulse sale. Yeah. Well, now there's where my entrepreneur and my analytical brain kicks in. I am a, I have my MBA from Wake Forest. I'm a computer person. I love, I can do spreadsheets. I did spreadsheets before Excel even existed. Wow. But 
<clears throat> so this was 1988. And so I made me a spreadsheet of Jane's shop. I wanted to see what the business model looked like. How many did she sell? Here's how much I sold them to her for. How much did it cost me? The difference is my gross profit. And add that all up at the bottom. And I saw how many she was selling per week, per month, per year. And then I said, well, what if I had one America gift shop like in every state, just 50? Let's say if I could, we can go in the whole big country and surely we can find one little store like hers somewhere else in every state. It's reasonable. I'm not, not getting greedy. So I made me a second column in my spreadsheet that said column one times 50. Well, you go down to the bottom line, 50 times a pretty good number was a real good number at the bottom. Yeah. And then I said, okay, Linda, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be totally greedy, but let's say we can find five per state, just 250 gift shops in the whole country. Column three times 250 times column one. And you look down at the bottom and I said, Linda, <clears throat> come over here. You got to see this. Look at this number. That's twice what I make at AT&T. Come on, look at this. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. I know what I have got to do. The light bulb, <laughs> it didn't take me but about a nanosecond to figure out I got to find those 250 gift shops pronto, as soon as I can. Now, I'm still working my job at AT&T during the day, but at night and weekends, Linda and I worked on how to, how do we find these other gift shops to play and to sell. And the secret to the success of the, the business model was people heard the music and wanted to take it home with them. Now, if you just had it on a shelf, not playing it, wouldn't have worked. Right. It had to be heard to be appreciated and, and desired by the customer. So that was the key. It's almost like these people are standing in the, in the Costco giving you away free samples of their food. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like a puppy dog sale. Here, try this. And then if you like it, here's a whole box of it. Well, it's like so, the power of habit, if you think about it, because the cue is listening to the song. It makes them feel happy or mm -hmm. relaxed or, you know, joyful or whatever it is. And then they buy the CD, right? Yeah, yeah, the point is they like how they feel when they yeah. hear that music, yeah. whatever it's making them feel. Right. So that model really, really did work. And I worked my butt off trying to find those shops. You know, we would physically go to, on the weekends, we'd go to little tourist towns. Linda would go on one side of the street and I'd go down the other, pop our heads in the gift shops and see what we heard. If we heard music, I'd go on in and make an acquaintance with the owner or the manager and I'd leave them a copy of Rachel's song in my business card and tell them to play it. And if you like it, give me a call. We can do some business and you could sell it and make some money with it. Well, I, almost everybody that ended up playing it with a, a good business uh, mind decided to carry it. My, my answering machine at home, when I get home would have <laughs> phone calls on it. This so-and-so at Occoquan at this such and such a gift shop. Yeah. Bring him, how about bringing me a dozen tapes and or shipping me a dozen tapes and CDs? So that's how we grew it as much as we could do what I call shoe leather marketing, you know, where you're out physically walking into places. Mm -hmm. Well, after a while, you run out of territory that's comfortably within the driving distance of, of where you live. And, you know, I couldn't drive to, you know, to Alberta to check out the gift shops in Alberta. That's a little bit far of a, a little too far away. But we had, we had, I worked for the telephone company, so we had, we could use the telephone, mm -hmm. but I needed to know who to call. Who do I call? And so I being, we were living in Maryland at the time. And so I went down to the library of Congress right across from the U S Capitol. They had a big old room in that uh, library that was nothing but phone books. I mean, I'm talking physical phone books and, and, so I could go and pull one off the shelf, go to the yellow pages in the back and look up gift shops, make me a Xerox copy of those pages and take that home with me. And I'd have me a long list of gift shops to call. Yep. And I can still tell you today exactly the words I used when I would call those gift shops. I, do you sell any music? Do you sell any tapes or CDs of the music that you play in your shop? And they would either say, no, we don't play music. And I'd say, thank you. Appreciate it. And hang up. 13 second phone call. 
Or they would say, yeah, well, we play music, but no, we don't sell it. In which case I would start into, well, do you ever have your customers ask you if they would, if you had it for sale, they'd like to take it home with them? And some, someone would say no, but some would say, yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that. And then I would try to talk them into, let me send them a, a copy of Rachel's song and let them try it. And if their customers wanted it, then we could start doing business. And then on a rare occasion back then, this was very rare, they would find a shop that really did play and sell the music they played. And so, but that was a very rare, but I was having to make 20, uh, 30 phone calls to get one potential customer. Wow. I was having to get used to hear the word no 29 <laughs> times to get one yes. Now you, you, you've all heard, true. you've all heard the story of how Thomas Edison had found 999 ways that a light bulb would not work but he found one with tungsten that it did work. Yeah. And so it's I, kind of that case. You just keep at it. You don't, <laughs> I, I knew if I made 29 phone calls, maybe that next one's going to say yes. Yeah. So you just keep at it. That's the thing that, in our business, in the financial services industry, well, not everyone wants your help, right? Not everyone wants to learn about money. Not everyone wants to have nope. insurance or, you know, save for retirement or whatever it is that they're looking for. But I know that if I want to be more successful in my business, all I have to do is phone more people, right? Mm -hmm. Because someone is going to want what I have. Yep. And it's just a matter of putting it out there going, Hey, if anyone wants my help, I have a great team, you know, like I'm able to support the business. I'm able to go out and change lives and make an impact and still make really good money. And like, it was so funny this weekend, one of my newer advisors was like, okay, I'm going to do this insurance policy and it's going to be awesome. And I was like, yeah, go girl. Like it's so good. And we calculated the production and she made a few hundred bucks, right? Almost a thousand bucks. But she's like, that was amazing. I got paid so much money per hour type thing. And then we sat down with another one of her friends yesterday. And these people are fairly well off, right? Like they're, they're pretty almost, almost at retirement, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And they inherited a business and now they need a big, huge insurance policy to be able to cover the tax liability when one of the siblings passes away. Right. And, yeah. Uh, I said, girl, if you didn't make that phone call, that wouldn't be your sale. Right. Mm -hmm. if you didn't, <laughs> if you didn't put mm -hmm. yourself out there, if you didn't go, Hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm helping people with. Those people wouldn't have known and they would have never come to you. So now she's going to make more money in one sale than she made all of last year. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I'm like, go girl. And she's like, what? I'm like, yeah. Yeah. The, the light bulb certainly went off for her. I bet. I guarantee you she's thinking now, how can I find another one of those like that? Yeah. Well, and, and I just told her like, this is not going to happen every single day. Nope. Right. Like these are the kind of scenarios that you hope and pray for because it's, that's a big sale, big, big mm -hmm. sale. But at the but same time, there are others out there. Totally. There are others out there. And the trick is, it's not a trick. And the, the, uh, the, the thing you want to have accomplished is to figure out how do I find those? And the, the next part of my story about the gift shops is that I wanted, I was calling Atlanta, the big, big towns as well. And I, I, I'd call and, and maybe the hit rate in those was the one in 50. I mean, most of those shops were not interested at all. No luck. And where I was having good luck was in tourist towns like Gatlinburg, Tennessee, Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Uh, I don't know what gift shops are around Alberta, but or little towns with gift shops. But that's where I was having my success. And so I said, I've got to quit wasting my time calling towns or cities that I know I'm not going to have very much luck with. Mm -hmm. I got to find a place where I'm really successful. It's the same thing that you're talking about. If you could find a way to calculate who are these prospects that have the the attitude and the the money and the wherewithal that need the insurance or whatever you're talking about, you can focus your energy and not waste time knocking on doors or making phone calls on people that are just going to hang up on you or say, no, I'm not interested. Yeah. So I needed to find a way to fine tune my marketing scheme on the phone. And I had learned and and it was it made a lot of sense that the place I was successful was places that had new customers all the time. If you think about a, a tourist town, what makes a tourist town? 
It's that they they have lots of gift shops and they have visitors, tourists that come into town and spend time, spend money and are there for a day or two and then they're gone. And you've got a whole new slew of customers that come in the next day. Every day is a whole new pallet load of of customers that come into your town. Uh, And so that was what I needed. But I didn't know where the tourists town. I knew where they were in Maryland and Virginia and North Carolina and Tennessee. But I didn't know about, you know, Canada or northern Seattle, Washington or the Washington state area or California or any of those states because I just didn't know where the tourist towns were. Mm-hmm. So I f- my analytical brain kicked in and I thought, well, first of all, I had I need to know where all the gift shops are in the whole country. And I did purchase the mailing list for the gift shops for the entire country. It was a computer printout about four inches thick, big computer wide paper, single spaced, alphabetical within town, within state. So I had a printout that had all 75,000 gift shops. Oh 75,000 now. That's Keep that number in mind. <laughs> That's a lot of the gift shops. So gift I, shops. there's no way in the world I can call 75,000, nor <laughs> I'd be calling from, from now on and I'd never get finished. So that's my base of where they are. I mean, the, the, the phone numbers. How do I know where the gifts, the tourist towns are? And I thought, okay. I, I, all I need to know is how many gift shops are in this town and then what's the population of that town. Now you think about it, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, if you've ever been there as a tourist place has probably, I don't know, maybe even 75, eight, maybe even a hundred gift shops. It's a, that's lots of gift shops. What is the permanent population of Gatlinburg, Tennessee? I don't know, 1500, 2000 people, whatever. Wow. No way in no way in the world that that few number of people can support that many businesses, right? Yeah. So that tells you that their customers have to come from someplace other than the local population. Right. That's the definition of a tourist. <laughs> so so I said, okay. Now how do I find out for all these towns in the country what their population is? Where's the easiest way? Now I didn't have Google. We didn't have the internet. Today we could just Google it or electronically get it. Back then, we didn't have that. Mm -hmm. So I went, if you want to know something, go to a librarian, right? I mean, they know everything. If they don't know something, they know where to go get it anyway. So I happened to work. It's on (laughs) right there. (laughs) Yeah. The uh, place I worked in Bethesda, Maryland, was right across the street from the public library. I went over there at lunch one day and I, I told the librarian lady, I said, here's what I need. I need to know for every little town in the country. What's the population? Where's the best place to get that? And she said, oh, I've got just the thing for you. She took me over to this big table that had this big book on it. I should have brought it in here too to show you, but it was about this thick, about two inches thick, about 18 inches wide, maybe two feet long, weighed about 12 pounds, big book. And it was called the Marketing Atlas. Some of your marketing folks will know what I'm talking about. It's a Marketing Atlas, a book that had maps, of every detail maps of the whole country. And in the back of it, it had every little crossroad within every state and the census population and a few other little pieces of data about it. Hmm. And, and so it, no matter where it was, I could look up their population. So here I go back to my spreadsheet again. So I've gone through my big printout. I spent days going through that thing, counting the number of gift shops in every town. I'd for a town, I went one, two, three, four, five, seventeen, 17, right? And I'd put that town and the state and the number in my spreadsheet. I'd go down to the next one, did the whole, sp- the whole printout, mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of, of towns in my spreadsheet. Then I went to this book. I, I ended up buying this big book because I didn't want to have to spend time in the library looking them up. I, I think it cost about $150 to buy the book. Wow. It, back then, that was expensive, yeah, but it was yeah. worth it. So I looked up in that book, the population of all these towns, and I put that number in my spreadsheet. And when I got through all, all finished with all those numbers, you know, a good thing about a spreadsheet is you can have it calculate whatever you want it to. So I had it calculate the population per gift shop for each of those towns. And that ratio then was in another column or uh, cell in the spreadsheet. Then I said, okay, spreadsheet, sort yourself. 
by that ratio in the lowest first to the highest by by state. And so every state then I'd have the the one the, the town that had the lowest ratio of population per gift shop. Well guess what? Gatlinburg, Tennessee, right at the top of the list for Tennessee. North Carolina, Blowing Rock, not the top of the list. Well, I knew that, so I knew it worked. And so I could go to Oregon, I could go to Mississippi, and anyone, and then those that were at the top of the list with a very low, like, you know, 100 or certainly maybe even just 200 population per gift shop, just start calling from the top of the list. Those were the tourist towns, guaranteed. I didn't even have to ever been there. Right. My hit rate went from one in 30 to one in five. Wow. So that is an illustration of the use of, now we call it analytics and big data. Back then, I just call it connecting the dots of, of, of what I realized. Right. But that it's the, the principle of being able to do and use what data you can find about whatever business you're in, if you're an entrepreneur, to focus your marketing on your customers. Find out who your customers are, what are their characteristics, and now, for example, with I know with Google ads and all these ads, they can get so precise it's not funny because they know everything you ever bought on on Amazon and all the online stores. Yeah. So if you want to know everybody that bought insurance in the last uh, online in the last year, you can. There's a way to I'm sure to market to just those people. Right. Uh, so you use the data that you have and focus and fine tune your marketing. Well, I did that and my. I would have by Sunday afternoon, I, I do this on Saturday, 10 o'clock Saturday morning, start calling until my voice gave out. Sunday morning I'd, uh, after church, I'd start calling until my voice gave out. I would have over 100 prospects almost every weekend to send packages out to. Wow. I ended up with over 1,000 gift shops playing and selling my music. And you can do the math. It was a big number. And in February of 1992, I had lunch with my boss at AT&T, and I said, Bill, I hate to tell you this, but I cannot afford to work here anymore. <laughs> and he laughed, and he said, well, I knew this was coming because he and I were good friends, and we talked a lot about things. And, but So I was able to quit my job and do my music full-time, su supporting all these gift shops, and by that time, I had a fan base of people that had bought my music. I kept their email, their mailing addresses. And when I came out with a new album, I would send a mailing out and almost all of them would buy my new album. So it was a very successful business model, but it wasn't something that I came up with brilliantly on my own to start with. But it was one of those where you just keep your eyes open and be willing to look at new ways of doing things and good things will happen. Exactly. Oh, that's such a good way to end it. And I loved this conversation, but I want people to be able to get more access to you. So where can they find you um, primarily? Where would you like to be contacted? Well, I've tried to, I've, I've made it really, really simple for folks. If all you have to remember is my last name, Combs, C-O-M-B-S, and it's CombsMusic.com. That's my website. And when you go to my website, <laughs> you'll see my picture of my my book, Touched by the Music, which has a lot of these stories in it, you'll see that up on the, uh, the side, the, on the left side of the screen. And on the right side of the screen, you'll see a, a picture of my, the cover of my Rachel Song CD. And then in the middle of the screen, you'll see a little thing that says, Play Rachel's Song. And if you click on that, you can hear the, the entire Rachel's Song in full fidelity. It's not, a, it's not a watered down sample. It's the real deal. And it is that original recording made by Gary in the studio that I was telling you about. It has not been remastered or anything. That is, you're hearing what I heard that evening in 1986. Yeah. It's, uh, so go to my website, combsmusic.com. Check out my book. Check out my CDs. And then there's, you, there's links to my other music in there, too. I have 15 albums. For those that play the piano, I have 11 piano music books. And sheet music for all of my songs. I have sheet music for over 170 songs. So wow. it's uh, quite a quite a quite a collection of music that you can you can look at and listen to and and enjoy. So combsmusic.com. If you're on the if you're listening to this while you're out riding a bicycle or whatever, all you got to remember when you get home, 
combsmusic.com and you'll find me and and there's a link to send me an email at the bottom i love to hear from you but uh hope you enjoy the music as 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 wonderfully as a lot of other people have and i appreciate your listening to uh elena and my my going over this today i think it's been fun to talk about it and i love to hear from you and the best to you thank you so much all right guys you heard them Make sure that you share the show and get him some publicity by the book if you want to. Uh, check out the website, definitely. And thank you so much again for being on the show today. I have loved every minute of it. I took so many notes and I'm like, yes, this is good. I loved your stories. That was fantastic. So thank you again for everything. And that is Pursuit of Relentless signing up for the day. <laughs>